The Fourth Mansions, Chapter 3 of the Interior Castle by St. Teresa of Avila. This is a Discerning Hearts recording read by Chris McGregor. The Interior Castle or the Mansions by St. Teresa of Avila, translated by the Benedictines of Stanbrook. The effects of divine consolations are very numerous. Before describing them, I will speak of another kind of prayer which usually precedes them. I need not say much on this subject, having written about it elsewhere. This is a kind of recollection which I believe is supernatural. There is no occasion to retire or to shut the eyes, nor does it depend on anything exterior. Involuntarily, the eyes suddenly close, and solitude is found. Without any labor of one's own, the temple of which I spoke is reared for the soul in which to pray. The senses and exterior surroundings appear to lose their hold, while the spirit gradually regains its lost sovereignty. Some say the soul enters into itself, others that it rises above itself. I can say nothing about these terms, but had better speak of the subject as I understand it. You will probably grasp my meaning, although perhaps I may be the only person who understands it. Let us imagine that the senses and powers of the soul, which I compare to my allegory to the inhabitants of the castle, have fled and joined the enemy outside. After long days and years of absence, perceiving how great has been their loss, they return to the neighborhood of the castle, but cannot manage to re-enter it, for their evil habits are hard to break off. Still, they are no longer traitors, and they wander about outside. The king, who holds his court within it, sees their goodwill, and out of his great mercy, desires them to return to him. Like a good shepherd, he plays so sweetly on his pipe, that although scarcely hearing it, they recognize his call and no longer wander, but return, like lost sheep, to the mansions. So strong is this pastor's power over his flock that they abandon the worldly cares which misled them and re-enter the castle. I think I never put this matter so clearly before. To seek God within ourselves avails us far more than to look for him amongst his creatures. St. Augustine tells us how he found the Almighty within his own soul, after having long sought for him elsewhere. This recollection helps us greatly when God bestows it upon us. But do not fancy you can gain it by thinking of God dwelling within you, or by imagining him as present in your soul. This is a good practice and an excellent kind of meditation, for it is founded on the fact that God resides within us. It is not, however, the prayer of recollection. For by the divine assistance, Everyone can practice it. But what I mean is a quite different thing. Sometimes, before they have begun to think of God, the powers of the soul find themselves within the castle. I know not by what means they entered, nor how they heard the shepherd's pipe. The ears perceive no sound, but the soul is keenly conscious of a delicious sense of recollection experienced by those who enjoy this favor which I cannot describe more clearly. I think I read somewhere that the soul is like a tortoise or a sea urchin, which retreats into itself. Those who said this, no doubt, understood what they were talking about. 
but these creatures can withdraw into themselves at will. While here, it is not in our power to retire into ourselves unless God gives us the grace. In my opinion, His Majesty only bestows this favor on those who have renounced the world, in desire at least, if their state of life does not permit their doing so in fact. He thus specially calls them to devote themselves to spiritual things. If they allow him power to act freely, he will bestow still greater graces on those whom he thus begins calling to a higher life. Those who enjoy this recollection should thank God fervently. It is of the highest importance for them to realize the value of this favor, gratitude for which would prepare them to receive still more signal graces. Some books advise that as a preparation for hearing what our Lord may say to us, we should keep our minds at rest, waiting to see what he will work in our souls. But unless his majesty has begun to suspend our faculties, I cannot understand how we are to stop thinking without doing ourselves more harm than good. This point has been much debated by those learned in spiritual matters. I confess my want of humility in having been unable to yield to their opinion. Someone told me of a certain book written on the subject by the saintly friar Peter of Alcantara, as I think I may justly call him. I should have submitted to his decision, knowing that he was competent to judge, but on reading it, I found he agreed with me that the mind must act until called to recollection by love, although he stated it in other words. Possibly, I may be mistaken. But I rely on these reasons. Firstly, he who reasons less and tries to do least does most in spiritual matters. We should make our petitions like beggars before a powerful and rich emperor, then with downcast eyes, humbly wait. When he secretly shows us he hears our prayers, it is well to be silent, as he has drawn us into his presence. There would then be no harm in trying to keep our minds at rest, that is to say, if we can. If, however, the king makes no sign of listening or of seeing us, there is no need to stand inert like a dolt, which the soul would resemble if it continued inactive. In this case, its dryness would greatly increase, and the imagination would be made more restless than before by its very effort to think of nothing. Our Lord wishes us at such a time to offer him our petitions and to place ourselves in his presence. He knows what is best for us. I believe that human efforts avail nothing in these matters, which his majesty appears to reserve to himself, setting this limit to our powers. In many other things, such as penances, good works, and prayers, with his aid we can help ourselves as far as human weakness will allow. The second reason is that these interior operations, being sweet and peaceful, any painful effort does us more harm than good. By painful effort, I mean any forcible restraint we place on ourselves, such as holding our breath. We should rather abandon our souls into the hands of God, leaving Him to do as He chooses with us. As far as possible, forgetting all self-interest and resigning ourselves entirely to His will. The third reason is that the very effort of thinking of nothing excites our imagination the more. The fourth is, 
because we render God the most true and acceptable service by caring only for his honor and glory and forgetting ourselves, our advantages, comfort, and happiness. How can we be self-oblivious while keeping ourselves under such strict control that we are afraid to move or even to think or to leave our minds enough liberty to desire God's greater glory and to rejoice in the glory which he possesses? When his majesty wishes the mind to rest from working, he employs it in another manner, giving it a light and a knowledge far above any attainable by its own efforts and absorbing it entirely into himself. Then, though it knows not how, it is filled with wisdom such as it could never gain for itself by striving to suspend the thoughts. God gave us faculties for our use. Each of them will receive its proper reward. Then do not let us try to charm them to sleep, but permit them to do their work until divinely called to something higher. In my opinion, when God chooses to place the soul in this mansion, it is best for it to do as I advised, and then endeavor, without force or disturbance, to keep free from wandering thoughts. No effort, however, should be made to suspend the imagination entirely from arming, for it is well to remember God's presence and to consider who he is. If transported out of itself by its feelings, well and good, but let it not try to understand what is passing within it, for this favor is bestowed on the will which should be left to enjoy it in peace, only making loving aspirations occasionally. Although in this kind of prayer the soul makes no efforts towards it, yet often, for a very short time, the mind ceases to think at all. I explained elsewhere why this occurs during this spiritual state. On first speaking of the first mansions, I told you I had mentioned divine consolations before the prayer of recollection. The latter should have come first, as it is far inferior to consolations, of which it is the commencement. Recollection does not require us to give up meditation, nor to cease using our intellect. In the prayer of quiet, when the water flows from the spring itself and not through conduits, the mind ceases to act. It is forced to do so, although it does not understand what is happening, and so wanders hither and thither in bewilderment, finding no place for rest. Meanwhile, the will, entirely united to God, is much disturbed by the tumult of the thoughts. No notice, however, should be taken of them, or they would cause the loss of a great part of the favor the soul is enjoying. Let the spirit ignore these distractions and abandon itself in the arms of divine love. His majesty will teach it how best to act, which chiefly consists in recognizing its unworthiness of so great a good and occupying itself in thanking him for it. In order to treat the prayer of recollection, I passed over silence in the effects and symptoms to be found in the souls thus favored by God. Divine consolations evidently cause a dilation or an enlargement of the soul that may be compared to water flowing from a spring into a basin which has no outlet, but is so constricted as to increase in size and proportion to the quantity poured into it. God seems to work the same effect by this prayer, 
besides giving many other marvelous graces, so preparing and disposing the soul to contain all he intends to give it. After interior sweetness and dilation, the soul is not so restrained as formerly in God's service, but possesses much more liberty of spirit. It is no longer distressed by the terror of hell, for though more anxious than ever not to offend God, it has lost servile fear and feels sure that one day it will possess its Lord. It does not dread the loss of health by austerities, believing that there is nothing it could not do by His grace. It is more desirous than before of doing penance. Greater indifference is felt for doing sufferings, because faith being stronger, it trusts that if born for God, He will give the grace to endure them patiently. Indeed, such a one at times even longs for trials, having a most ardent desire to do something for his sake. As the soul better understands the divine majesty, it realizes more vividly its own baseness. Divine consolation shows that how vile are earthly pleasures. By gradually withdrawing from them, it gains greater self-mastery. In short, its virtues are increased and it will not cease to advance in perfection unless it turns back and offends God. Should it act thus, it would lose everything, however high the state it may have reached. It is not to be supposed that all these effects are produced merely by God's having shown these favors or twice. They must be received continually, for it is on their frequent reception that the whole welfare of the soul depends. I strongly urge those who have reached this state to avoid most carefully all occasions of offending God. The soul is not yet fully established in virtue, but it is like a newborn babe first feeding at its mother's breast. If it leaves her, what can it do but die? I greatly fear that when a soul to whom God has granted this favor discontinues prayer, except under urgent necessity, it will go from bad to worse. I realize the danger of such a case, having had the grief of witnessing the fall of persons I knew through their withdrawal from him, who sought with so much love to make himself their friend, as he proved by his treatment of them. I urgently warn such persons not to run the risk of sinning, for the devil would rather gain one of these souls than many to whom our Lord does not grant such graces as the former may cause him a severe loss by leading others to follow their example, and may even render great service to the church of God. Were there no other reason except that he saw the special love his majesty bears these people, it would suffice to make Satan frantic to destroy God's work in them, so that they might be lost eternally. Therefore they suffer grievous temptations, and if they fall, they fall lower than others. You, my sisters, are free from such dangers, as far as we can tell. God keep you from pride and vainglory. The devil sometimes offers counterfeits of the graces I have mentioned. This can easily be detected, the effects being exactly contrary to those of the genuine ones. Although I have spoken of it elsewhere, I wish to warn you here of a special danger to which those who practice prayer are subject, particularly women whose weakness of constitution makes them more liable to such mistakes. 
On account of their penances, prayers and vigils, or even merely because of debility of health, some persons cannot receive spiritual consolations without being overcome by it. On feeling any interior joy, their bodies being languid and weak, they fall into a slumber. They call it spiritual sleep, which is a more advanced stage of what I have described. They think the soul shares in it as well as the body and abandon themselves to a sort of intoxication. The more they lose self-control, the more do their feelings get possession of them because the frame becomes more feeble. They fancy this is a trance and call it one, but I call it nonsense. It does nothing but waste their time and injure their health. The state lasted with a certain person for eight hours, during which time she was neither insensible nor had she any thought of God. She was cured by being made to eat and sleep well and to leave off some of her penances. Her recovery was owing to someone who understood her case. Hitherto she had unintentionally deceived both her confessor and other people, as well as herself. I feel quite sure the devil had been at work here to serve his own ends, and he was beginning to gain a great deal from it. It should be known that when God bestows such favors on the soul, although there may be languor both of mind and body, it is not shared by the soul, which feels great delight at seeing itself so near God, nor does the state ever continue more than a very short time. Although the soul may become absorbed again, yet, as I said, unless already feeble, the body suffers neither exhaustion nor pain. I advise any of you who experience the latter to tell the prioress and to divert your thoughts as much as possible from such matters. The superior should prevent such a nun from spending more than a very few hours in prayer and should make her eat and sleep well until her usual strength is restored if she has lost it in this way. If the nun's constitution is so delicate that this does not suffice, let her believe me when I tell her God only calls her to the act of life. There must be such people in monasteries. Employ her in the various offices and be careful that she is never left very long alone. Otherwise, she will entirely lose her health. This treatment will be a great mortification to her. Our Lord tests her love for him by the way in which she bears his absence. He may be pleased after a time to restore her strength. If not, she will make as much progress and earn as great a reward by vocal prayer and obedience as she would have done by contemplation and perhaps more. There are people, some of whom I know, whose minds and imaginations are so active as to fancy they see whatever they think about, which is very dangerous. Perhaps I may treat of this later on, but cannot do so now. I have dwelt at length on this mansion as I believe it to be the one most souls enter. As the natural is combined with the supernatural, the devil can do more harm here than later on, when God does not leave him so many opportunities. May God be forever praised. Amen.